Hi, it's Laura Dickinson from Denise and Ferb, and you are listening to Stories of the Magic. Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Welcome to episode 24 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me and Happy New Year. In this episode, we continue my chat with Jennifer McGill. Last time, we talked about how she got started working for Disney and being part of the new Mickey Mouse Club. What else she did for Disney, this time as a Walt Disney World cast member in American Vibe and Tarzan Rocks, and more. A couple of memorable in-park experiences from her days in the Mickey Mouse Club, including writing Tower of Terror with Christina Aguilera. What it was like being a student while working on the Mickey Mouse Club. You'll be amazed at what she had to do her junior year in high school if you go back and listen, and much more. In this one, we backtrack a little bit so you can hear the end of last week's section to keep the flow of the stories, then hear, among other things, how she kept a balance between work and play on her jobs, how she got connected with several of the jobs she's had over the years, what she loved most about what she did, including her favorite role for Disney, what it was like to perform in the rotunda of the American Adventure Building, her residual pixie dust from being on the Mickey Mouse Club even years later, how she tries to stay humble, and how she balances that with having confidence in yourself. Tarzan Rocks, which I didn't know a lot about, because I never got to see it, but she gave a really good description of it. Her performing career after Disney, including dinner theater, cover bands and party bands, cruise ships, the Holy Land experience, and being the praise and worship coordinator at her church, and what she learned from them. The new album she's working on, and the Disney job she would most love to have. After this part of the interview, I'll play another clip from This Little Light, performed by Jennifer, as I did last week. Now, a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, and then it's time to turn the page and continue this story. My name is Al. And I'm Joyce. And we're We're huge huge Disneyland Disneyland fans. fans. In fact, we love the Disneyland Resort so much, we host a podcast dedicated to the happiest place on Earth to share that passion with others. That's right. On our show, Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast, we share current resort news, some tips and tricks we've learned over the years to help make your Disneyland Resort vacation the most magical experience ever. We uncover little-known and often-overlooked gems we like to call hidden treasures and even review the attractions and places to eat that make the Disneyland Resort so much fun. And if that wasn't enough, we even share some video episodes to help keep you in that Disney magic state of mind. If you're a longtime fan of the Disneyland Resort or you've just recently discovered the magic, this podcast is for you. You can find Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast at www. Talescast.com and in iTunes. And remember, make, make it, it a, a Mickey, Mickey day. day. And now, this week's interview on Stories of the Magic. I've always been blessed with friends who, no matter how we first met, whether they were fans in the beginning or it wasn't a big deal or, or anywhere in between that, All of my friends who have stayed very close with me through the years have always, from time to time, said, I forget that you're Jennifer McGill. I forget. I just see you as Jen or whatever. And I love it that regardless of maybe that rotating audience during the time that that show was ultimately popular, regardless of who was watching me in real life, not at MGM Studios, but just on the street or in my classroom, I didn't really have a paranoia about it whatsoever. I took it in stride, and I just hung out with who I liked, and it, it really all just worked out. So I just really think I was I was really okay with transition. I, I've really been blessed. <laughs> I still love to travel and, and work. Uh, most of my vacations are actually jobs still. Really? Wow. <laughs> it sounds like you've always got this mindset that it's to, you're not leaving something, you're going to something. Oh, yeah. And that might make the transition easier. Oh, yeah. 
I do traveling. I love working. Um, I've been known to be a workaholic, and I, I most of the time I just kind of wrap everything into one thing. If I'm if I'm uh, like I remember I would go to Las Vegas to do a corporate job where you would go, you know, sing for it. Like a company would have their annual end of the fiscal year celebration, like a real estate company or whatever, and they'd rent out a big convention center in one of the casinos at Las Vegas, and they would need someone who sang like let's say Celine Dion, right? And so they would hire me or, you know, at that time it was me because I'm the one who showed up, but they would say, we need someone who sings big like this. So someone would know someone who would dial my number and I would show up for the job and you have a free hotel, you get fed and I, and you have time off after your mic check and I would just go walk. I would just get my backpack and my sneakers and walk and I just would take pictures so I would make every job a vacation because I would just get out and see what was around me, you know, because I never was used to taking vacations as a kid. The first time I went to Walt Disney World was our executive producer showed me Epcot Center, like the, you know, just showed me the ball from the parking lot. And he was like, here it is. I was like, oh, my gosh, that's that's. Epcot. The first time I went to MGM Studios, it wasn't even open yet. I was hanging out among planters that had no plants in them, and I watched them put the swans on the Swan Hotel. You know, I I climbed through the Foley stage when the plastic flooring was still on. You know, they hadn't even unwrapped the carpet. So my vacations have always been mostly wrapped up in in working as well, but I'm comfortable with that because I grew up that way. Sure, that makes sense. Um, so talk about a set of unique experiences there, but it's great that you can you know, make each one serve more than one purpose. That's great. It's Randy, I like multitasking. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> so with all the stuff that you did on the Mickey Mouse Club and, and American Vibe and Tarzan Rocks and the contracting and, and you know the studio session work that you've done for Disney, what did you love most about what you did? Well, I still say, besides the Mickey Mouse Club, my favorite job based on content and the cast has always been American Vibe because, I mean, I had grown up working with harmonies, you know, learning quickly and recording, you know, harmonies and songs. We did do certain live concerts. Some of us had to blend in a live manner with microphones, but besides anything, any kind of choir stuff I used to do in church, I had never risen to the occasion of an acapella group. So this was, uh, even through college, you know, um, cause this was all after I graduated. This was post Mickey Mouse Club, post New York University. I got into this group and it was kind of like, the Mickey Mouse Club all over again, even though we weren't asked to be, you know, on television and we didn't have, you know, comedic skits per se, we were called to be funny and think on the spot. And, you know, we were singing to, to an intimate live audience around us. We were having to blend, step out and be soloists, step back in and be part of the group. We had choreography. We had lines. You know, it was all of those basics, but in a small, more intimate setting and live that I used to love about the Mickey Mouse Club. And honestly, I mean, the music, Deke Sharon has been spoken about on the show before. And Deke was our first musical director um, who I had come in contact with there um, when I started working in American Vibe. He was spending a lot of uh, productive quality time with the group, and I really benefited from that because I learned, like I've said, uh, you know, I never walked into somewhere like that assuming that I knew more than everybody else. You know, I wouldn't have gone to college if I had assumed coming out of the Mickey Mouse Club that I was done learning, you know, at 17 or whatever. So, I walked into there with this new overwhelming challenge because there was so much material that, that we needed to learn. And on top of, you know, let's say 40 songs uh, that maybe we had in our heads, then you start learning, you know, soprano one or two, you know, whichever one you start with. Let's say I start with soprano two. Then I learn soprano one. Then I go on to alto one. And then eventually every now and then I'll learn an alto two or vocal percussion. So, <laughs> you know, every now and then I'd play a trumpet with just my voice. So, you know, you just um, 
you rise to the occasion or, or I certainly enjoyed doing that with this group. And the personalities were so all over the place. I mean, you had the meek and the mild, you had the extremely outlandish comical personalities. And I loved just being a fly on the wall and witnessing just, you know, how entertaining those people were even off stage. You know, a lot of those uh, men and women became very, very valuable friends of mine. So there was a lot of love there. So I, I always speak fondly of American Vibe, um, even just on the personal level. Not only did it challenge me professionally, but uh, personally, I really did love that group and uh, what it represented. So um, that would be my favorite adult job on property that I did for Disney. Okay, good. Uh, on American Vibe, or in American Vibe, I guess, you said you usually started with soprano one or two. Is that where you're most comfortable singing? Do you usually hang out there in the soprano range? Well, it really depends. Um, soprano 2 in American Vibe was usually where they would start your belter soloist because Soprano 2 wasn't extremely high, and we never really went into the range of what a Soprano 1 would have to do in Voices of Liberty. They are way extremely high. It does stretch you more in Voices of Liberty than where American Vibe would normally live in a Soprano 1 or Soprano 2 part. And so depending on what they needed, you you know, just depending on the cast as it was at that moment, Soprano 2 was a good practical place for them to start me on. But it depends. If, if you're talking about choral parts, I'm a strong Soprano 1, but my experience and maybe what sets me apart in my tone and, and just vocally as a soloist is not a Soprano 1 sound, a choral sound, I am usually cast as an alto that belts high because I am a soprano belter, which is different than an alto belter. It's just the, the flexibility of your voice. It's just different. Where your strength is in an actual high chest resonance, it is different. It's in no way less to be an alto belter. It's just one of those, it's just a different thing. You know, it's like being this, this tall or that tall. It's just a thing. You know, it's just that's it. It's no better or no worse. I've just learned over the years that I'm hired for my solo abilities, but what I love was that because of American Vibe, I am now also valuable um, as an independent contractor for my blend abilities. <laughs> <laughs> and it really did end in, like, as far as the final, uh, I, I, this is the wrong terminology, the final nail in the coffin, but it wasn't that. But basically, I think my final big, big, big training was with American Vibe when it comes to blending. Uh, in live acapella performance style, because you can't hide in acapella. There's no turning up or down a microphone. You're just out there with your group, with your voices. There's no music to play over you. It's just you. Right, yeah. That's the the most exposed that you can really be as a singer. And it's ear as well. You're way more sensitive to sharps and flats and tones and blending and not, you know. And I love that stuff. Like, I may not know all of the lingo, and I'm definitely not, in a classical sense, I am not as knowledgeable um, as many wonderful mentors uh, I have out there. But when it comes to tone and blending and being on stage and making things work and fit together and adjust things, that's where I live, you know, and I train people to be able to do that as well. Sure, definitely. Uh, now, and as pre-show, you said for Voices of Liberty, then were you also performing there in the rotunda of the American Adventure? Yes, yes. In the rotunda at the time uh, that American Vibe was uh, American Vibe, we would also stand where the Voices of Liberty do still stand. It's that red circle. Mm -hmm. one around because in the rotunda uh, we didn't need microphones because uh, under that dome in there uh, the rotunda the structure allows people who are sitting close to that circle to hear us as if we're just standing right next to them um, so there's no need for electrical amp amplification so it was a really cool space you know I actually walk into certain movie theaters you know how every now and then you'll walk through like just a section of the lobby to get to a movie theater an actual theater like the one of the numbers, and you walk through one of those little circles. I think they even had one at, at Pleasure Island AMC in Orlando, and or AMC. It's called something new now, like AMC 24. But um, in that area, walk through this circle, and it's just like the rotunda. So um, it's a really cool structure, and every time I walk through one of those areas, 
I think of American Vibe and the Voices of Liberty and how cool that space was. Oh, yeah. In fact, that's exactly what I was going to ask is what it's like singing in that rotunda with those acoustics and everything that you've got there. That's exactly what it is because the Voices of Liberty say the same thing. I mean, the groups who, and as far as I know at, at this time, I mean, based on my, my limited perspective and knowledge uh, all these years later, American Vibe and the Voices of Liberty are who have done regular shows in that space. I don't know. There are special events in that space, but let's just say those are the two groups that I know that have stood there over and over and over again and sung to crowds. And uh, we always are focused on gathering the people in, sitting them down, and performing right to them. And what's wonderful about it is that you have such a strong cast, whether you're talking about Voices of Liberty or American Vibe, you have such a strong cast of singers where every one of those people can and do step out and do some crazy vocalization like they're all really good at what they do but we are all focused on singing to this intimate crowd we ourselves are also singing only slightly in front of ourselves you know down to these people that are all gathered around the campfire if you will you know it's a very intimate setting um, for all of these powerhouse singers to deliver, uh, oftentimes, a very tender song um, in such a strong place, right? So I just love the dynamic of that, how it's, it's, it's almost like a contradiction, but it works together. It's like gentle giants. You know, the Voices of Liberty, what a powerful group, and they're gentle giants to this wonderful little intimate crowd in the rotunda, you know? And American Vibe, has performed on larger stages with microphones and a band. You know, we've become kind of that that pop jazz thing for a while, and we did an album and all that good stuff. But again, where I remember it the best was when we were in the rotunda, just like another set of gentle giants, you know, just really having fun with this small group gathered around the rotunda circle. So I love that that idea very much, that you can you can be both. You can be powerful, but very tender in that cool little space. Most definitely, definitely. Now, do you have any favorite stories uh, of your time either in the Mickey Mouse Club or performing in the parks uh, of something that made magic for a guest or a fan or, or even maybe something that a guest or a fan did that made some magic for you? Well, I know that every time a fan would stop me in the park. That was definitely magic because I was so young to have anyone stop me anywhere and say, you're Jennifer McGill from the Mickey Mouse Club. I love your voice. Or, oh, my gosh, when you did that one skit, like they have their own, you know, they specify, you know, this is this was the thing I remember about you. And, Randy, still today I will have people come up to me and say, are you Jennifer from the Mickey Mouse Club, and I'll be like, yes, and they say, I recognize your face, your face hasn't changed, when you did this song, that was my favorite, or when you did this skit, that was my favorite, like, they're still, in in all of us in our 30s, and most of them with children, they remember like it was yesterday, their favorite moment of that show, and who their crushes were, and we'll just talk about it, and and I'm someone who, I've spoken about this with other Mouseketeers, and I think it is the consensus that I'm definitely one of the top Mouseketeers who has never kind of veered away from talking about all that stuff, like just just reminiscing because I had not as much of a distinction between my normal moments, let's say, my kid moments, and then my professional kid moments. You know, all of that ran together. It was all my family. It was all my work and my life and my work and my play and my life. You know, there was really not as much of a distinction for me because I was so young when I began that show. And so I love reminiscing, and I kind of always have, even when I was trying to be, you know, cool, I guess, quote, unquote, like aloof, you know, like trying to be uh, just more cool. I don't even know how to explain it, you know, because I don't think it's cool anymore to be that way, but (laughs) (laughs) less accessible or whatever, you know, and try to have a front or something. I don't know. I just, uh, you'd get me talking about the, the Mickey Mouse Club, and because I do remember it so vividly and have very warm thoughts about it, I just, you'll get me talking about it. You know, that I love interviews because of that. I'll just start rambling. People will be able to edit all sorts of stuff because I will just talk and talk and talk, as you know, Randy. 
So uh, <laughs> magic was everywhere. I got stopped in other parks as well. I would go visit parks in Tampa or just in general, like I've said, like with other jobs um, completely unrelated to Disney property, I would get recognized. And <laughs> actually one of my most recent favorite stories, there's a, a nice lady who – I say lady, I, she's a little bit younger than me. She's a lovely young woman who goes to my church, and she's been there for a while. And I started going to that church in February, and I was on the praise and worship team by March, and she is also on the team. And last month, our minister decided to announce, like he just had a moment of being able to, you know, just, just uh, announce people, just talk, you know, honor people on stage. And I was on stage with the group, and he mentioned that I was a Mouseketeer, that their church has their own Mouseketeer. And this woman told me after that, when we got off stage, she goes, I have been trying to figure out where I know you from since I first saw you. And I loved that show. I totally loved that show. I remember all the dance moves. I like that's why I'm a performer today. That's why I'm on stage singing right now is because of that show. And that's a lady that I go to church with, you know, someone that I've known who couldn't put her finger on it. But once she once she had the memory, she just couldn't say enough about how much that show influenced her. And I can't think of anything more magical than that. Even when you're not in the studio in MGM, when you're not on the soundstage, when you're not watching the show, you know, 15 years later or more, somewhere completely different, unrelated, you can have that much of a magical residue, like residual pixie dust that's still coming out of your head and your heart about that show. I just think that's so powerful. And that happens a lot. I love it. That's great. I love that. <laughs> I, I can imagine being on stage with someone and be like, I, I know you from somewhere, and then have that connection uh, you know, come through. I try not to say it. I'm not the one who's like, if they say, hey, are you... I don't go, yes, I'm Jennifer McGill from the Mickey Mouse Club. definitely go through every other option. I'm like, where did you go to high school, college, you know, where do you, where, what's your hometown? You know, we, I go through everything else first. Yeah, because I just want to make sure that uh, I don't jump to, again, like I, like I said earlier, you know, I want to make sure that I don't assume that I'm, you know, famous or better than anybody, or uh, memorable in that way. And, uh, you know, I don't put myself down, but I just, I really try to stay humble, you know. And, and there's all sorts of degrees of success with that, especially in entertainment, because you have to believe in yourself to a certain degree, or you can't do your best on stage. And even as you're preparing, if you don't even believe in yourself as you're rehearsing, you know, how are you going to believe in yourself when you actually have to deliver on stage? So there, it is a balance and it's harder, you know, and you've said, Randy, in other professions, there's a similar degree of pressure that we that we have to perform, to deliver. And I agree that, you know, you must stay humble to the point where you can allow people to influence your world and to uh, to learn from people, but you also have to believe in yourself to the point that you know who you are and you know what you have to give. And Disney definitely mag magnified that for me at a very young age. Sure. Yeah. I've got something to give. I can also always learn something from someone, and there has to be both of those. That was the Mickey Mouse Club in a nutshell. We were constantly learning because we were all so young, and even the most experienced who came from Broadway were only 12 or 13, you know? So no one was at the top of their game and knew everything at 13, even coming from Broadway. So we were constantly learning, constantly being challenged, but we were also being built up because we were chosen. We were the, the few and the proud, you know, that were on that show and that had to deliver. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And now since the Mickey Mouse Club and then coming back and working uh, in the parks, uh, and in fact, even before going on from the parks, can you talk a little bit about Tarzan Rocks? I suspect that I, know I don't really know a lot about the show. Uh, I hadn't made it out to Walt Disney World yet at the time that that show was happening. and I don't know how many of the listeners know about it. So before moving on from the parks, can you just kind of summarize that show and what you did in it? Tarzan Rocks was... Um a live concert feel in the theater that now houses Nemo at Animal Kingdom. And when I was privileged to learn the part and to be on the set and to uh, get the idea of the show, where the show was when I was in it, which was right at the end, 
it was like the last few months of the show. I think it closed in January uh, of that year. So I was there around the holidays and through January until it closed. But um, that show, Tarzan Rocks, displayed live aerial performance, stunts on rollerblades and flips, live dancers, a live band, and then three live rock vocalists who would help to narrate the show through song. And, of course, it's the story of the Disney version of Tarzan. And uh, Tarzan and Jane, the characters in the show, were our aerialists. So they would do all of their dances um, in the air, holding on to, you know, I don't know the technical terms, but basically like their vines. (laughs) Uh, And they would do all of their aerial stunts um, in that capacity, kind of in the center of the stage. And your your male vocalist um, was kind of the lead narrator. And we, you know, we would travel the stage only a little bit because the the expanse of the stage itself and what the stunt coordinators and performers would would put forth each show was huge it was so huge that they had an on-site chiropractor they would have a massage therapist because the the cast was so huge and the demand on the muscles and you know all all the stunt scenarios put a lot of a lot of uh wear and tear on people's bodies and their equipment and everything. So there was just a lot of um, therapy going on. But on the flip side of it, it was such an exciting show. And I never got used to it because I was only a sub there, and I only did get to do the show for about two months. But in my opinion, I mean, Tarzan Rocks, it's the perfect uh, title for that show because it was a live rock concert because you're seeing a band play live. You know, we all had inner ear monitors. We were all listening to live band things. You know, we were all singing. We were all having to blend. Uh, I Again, I learned alto and soprano. So, you know, we'd look at each other and go, well, which one do you want to do today? You know, I mean, we would just all just say, all right, well, I'll just do this part because you did it last time or, um, well, I'm a little sick today, so you take the high stuff. And, you know, okay. So it was – and what was awesome was we got to stand on stage basically the whole time, and I'd get to watch Tarzan and Jane do their pieces every show. You know, you're just watching them above you to the point where you almost could get kicked in the face, I suppose, if something, you know, were just a little uh, adjusted differently. It didn't – I mean, I never saw anything like that happen. Obviously, uh, like like you said earlier, Earlier, safety is done very well at Disney, so um, I never had any uh, personal experiences with being afraid for my life during Tarzan Rocks, but it was so spectacular and epic. I, that show was quite wondrous. You also had audience participation moments. You know, there would be characters who would come out, and, and uh, including myself, we would lead the audience in, you know, claps and rhythm and, per- and percussion, you know. So it was the true essence of a Disney rock concert with the cast of Tarzan. It was a really cool show. And the theater at the time was an outside theater. The, uh, the walls were open. It had a roof on it, but otherwise it was open. So um, I really loved how connected to nature it was as well even though you're in the middle of a rock concert with skaters and dancers and characters and vocalists and a band and aerialists, uh, you see the the nature all around you because there were no walls to the theater. It was super cool. Um, I love that show. That sounds like a great show. I'm going to have to track down some videos on YouTube of it or something, which I know is not going to be anywhere near the same as being there in the theater, but it's about as close as we can get now. Yeah. So. Even just seeing it on video from, from far back, you, you'll be able to see how much was going into the show. You know, so much live stuff. There was hardly anything. I don't, I, I don't know if we had much of a video. Like, I don't even remember if there's a video screen in the back. It was so live. That's what was awesome about it was everything was really happening in real time right in front of you. It's pretty cool. Wow, sounds like it. (laughs) Uh, Now, since working for Disney, you've gone on to quite a varied career. I described some of it in the introduction, but uh, tell me about that. Well, right after college, uh, when I came back to Orlando, I got into dinner theater because, again, you know, I'd I'd never done it before, and um, I've had a lot of experience in memorizing lines but not a lot of experience in improvisation with live audience members, you know, where they'll just yell something out. You have to respond in a funny way. You know, you got to have comebacks. you got to be witty. you got to think on your feet. Every audience has its own personality, so every night's different. And I really learned a lot 
in dinner theater um, how to really be on top of, uh, you know, the comments and the, and the comebacks and keeping everything funny or, or sticking to my character even. At one place I played a, a brassy kind of manager of a restaurant and, and always, always in a sequins dress, like always dressed to the nines. And uh, I decided to have a Brooklyn accent. And so I had to make up a whole story that had to do with that as well as stay in character if someone decided to heckle or even just, you know, be funny or or flirtatious, regardless of what they gave me. I had to give it back in my own character. So I did a few dinner theater shows, and that was really a wonderful learning experience. And all along the way, I would meet someone who would refer me to my next job. Um, That's how I I made the transition back into Disney as an adult as well, was through, uh, you know, just kind of getting back into the the social climate there of performance in the area. And so through Disney, I branched out. I started doing more session work, and um, I started uh, doing private voice lessons. And mostly in Orlando, I discovered um, there's a lot of, of course, uh, tourism that loves cover bands and loves that party band feel, especially in 2000, you know, the first 10 years of 2000, um, there was a lot of pop music going on. And so I started getting into party bands and I had so much fun. Again, a different kind of element to live performance. It wasn't live theater. I didn't have any lines. I was part of a front line of top 40s singing that wasn't as delicate as American Vibe, and it wasn't as dramatic as my live musical theater, but it was just high energy, right? So it was all about the show, you know? And again, I hadn't necessarily ever had to have it be just all about the show business in you know, the show in the show business. So I get my red dress on and I'm partying and I'm dancing and I'm high energying and I'm clapping and I'm, you know, getting everyone in into the groove and and then every now and then I'd go sing a song and every now and then we'd have choreography. And we toured the world, you know. We'd go to Puerto Rico. We we would be in all sorts of casinos and just all sorts of parts, all sorts of different parts of uh, and climates in the United States and um, all sorts of parties. We would do weddings, conventions, and uh, or just really intimate settings like a jazz thing, you know, or just slow songs. I mean, you just never knew what party you were going to walk into. This was so funny. I remember two sides of this idea. Okay, I sang with the Mickey Mouse Club. I was one of the Mouseketeer representatives who got to sing at the Kennedy Center to celebrate President Clinton's inauguration. And Will Smith introduced us, and some of us performed the song Joy. And for the next four years, I would get a Christmas card from the Clintons, right, from the White House. Now, I remember on the flip side of that as well, a few years later, I sang at the Texas-Wyoming inaugural ball for President Bush, and then I just found a Christmas card from the Bush family, you know, in in my stuff a few days ago, and I was like, oh, I totally remember that, because they thanked me for singing at that ball, and it wasn't Jennifer McGill singing, it was the party band that I was affiliated with at the time, but I got my own Christmas card, and I was just like, how how cool is that? It didn't matter if I was a Mouseketeer or not. I was still doing something that, you know, would make waves, you know, that was getting noticed and providing a service and providing entertainment. So I don't know. I guess I just kept learning through the years that I was still making an impact and having a good time, you know, regardless of television or success or degree of celebrity. You know, how do you measure success? You know, I have never grown tired of what I do for a living, and I think that's a pretty big victory. So I've just had a lot of fun in those years of doing the the cover band, you know, pop celebration idea. And when I decided to make a change, I got a referral to sing on a cruise ship. So then I went to Hawaii for a year and toured the islands for a year on a cruise ship. And I was their soprano singer, uh, soprano female singer. And, I mean, we went to we, – we, we started out in Imschhaven, Uh And I think that's in Amsterdam. I don't even know. <laughs> I have no idea either. It sounds 
like it would be. It was our, our dock for our brand new cruise ship. And um, we sailed the Atlantic and we went through the Panama Canal, which was amazing. And we, you know, toured the right side of the United States and went all the way down and around and then toured the left side and crossed the Pacific. And then there we were in Hawaii. And I spent, you know, the rest of the year touring the islands of Hawaii and amazing like who who gets to do that you know and if I had decided to make I mean that's a whole career in itself people who are on cruise ships in the entertainment industry they see the world if they uh, keep their tours fresh and new you know if you change ships or change schedules every now and then there are people that get to see the whole world for free Talk about working on vacation. But my my year on the cruise ship, it was really cool. And um, it's not my favorite kind of living because, you know, you're in such a small space, but you can't beat, you know, my Monday I was in Honolulu and Tuesday I was in uh, Hilo. Wednesday and Thursday I was on Maui. Friday was Kona and Saturday and Sunday was Kauai every week for a year. Gee, that sounds rough. Right, exactly. Can't, you know, I can't complain. And then after that, I actually, there was a, a new chapter in my life. It was kind of revisiting an old way, but I really embraced it differently this time. In 2008, I came back to Orlando, Florida again, and I started working for the Holy Land Experience, um, which is right there in Orlando, Florida. It's been owned by a few different companies, but when I came in in 2008, um, it was in another kind of transition. But uh, at the time that I, I started working there, it was heavily uh, into musical theater. Lots of live musical shows. It was very important that you could sing. And they just brought me in. You know, it's, it was a theme park that was originally developed to, to educate other, like maybe non-Christian groups about uh, the gospel. But eventually, you know, of course, if you're, if you're paying to go into a place, you're not probably going to pay to go in and maybe hear something that you don't agree with. So <laughs> they, they Came, um, mostly believers already of the gospel, which is great. And of course, over the years, we've had plenty of people come in who were, who were questioning or maybe weren't necessarily looking, but found, found answers, you know, um, through the park. And that was what was so special about my time there. I, I worked at the Holy Land Experience for about two and a half years in conjunction with, I was also, um, the praise and worship musical coordinator at a local church. So I was heavily invested in, Another chapter of my life that I had not focused on necessarily, but still in the business of music, this praise and worship idea, because you have musical theater, you have television performance, you have film, uh, you have improv acting, you have acapella music, you have concert, pop band conferences, and then you have praise and worship. It's completely different, but has elements of all the other things that I've learned so far. So even at the age of 30, I was beginning another course of learning in something that I had been a professional at for 20 years or so at the time. So um, the Holy Land experience, I worked there for about two and a half years and made some dear friends who are still dear to this day. And I believe that that was really a big chapter in my life, which now still is relevant as I go into becoming a gospel artist right now, a recording artist, um, because I've spent my whole life singing in church. But really, on a personal note, I really understand now what I'm singing about in a way that, you know, it just took me a long time to get to. You know, my, my journey has been long, <laughs> and I feel like uh, now, uh, you know, I'm in a place where I can really communicate using all the stuff that I've I've worked with, all the different techniques of communication through music. I can really communicate on an intimate but aggressive, pleasing to the ear, but hopefully stirring to the soul level of song now um, based on the gospel. And so that's kind of the chapter that I'm I'm still in. You know, I don't work at the Holy Land Experience anymore. But like you mentioned, I had the pleasure of singing on TBN a few times. I sang Blessed, which was made famous by Rachel Lampa. And I recorded for TBN, We Shall Behold Him, sang that on the channel as well. I was interviewed by Jason Crabb, who I love. 
he's such an inspiration and he he was such a supporter of me when I sang like he's he's really really a great supporter and um so I got a lot of love and a lot of support from that time and um more tools just more wonderful uh you know god related tools that have just enriched my performance level and now performance isn't that competitive idea where you've got to be the best now what I do is you just have to be understood. You have to be heard. You have to be inspiring. And you have to be real. You have to be truthful. I no longer play a character in the music that I deliver most of the time these days. I'm playing myself speaking the truth about my life and my perspective. So that is a huge gift in itself that I'm getting more and more out of playing other people's lives and singing other people's music. I'm really getting more into what do I have to say as a human being based on all these different chapters of my life and how can I say it differently than someone else, you know? So I'm really excited about where I am right now and recording this gospel music and, you know, making things new and original. And, um, you know, 2013 is going to be very exciting. I'm really, really, really happy about it. That's great. That, that is wonderful. I can't wait for whenever that gospel album comes out and whenever it does let me know and I will talk about it on the show you can even come back on and talk about it a bit if you want to yeah you mentioned the you being on the the praise and worship team at your church now and the one when you were in Orlando do you have a favorite song either cur- a current song or one of the the older uh, praise songs or even the hymns or something like that uh, or and or a favorite uh, praise and worship artist right now You know, those are tough questions because I did not grow up in the Christian, listening to the Christian music, quote unquote, industry. Um, I knew a little bit about Michael W. Smith. I knew a little bit about Amy Grant, but I I listened and and responded to a lot of soul in music. And as I got older, uh, gospel and soul became more uh, obvious to me in the 90s pop scene, you know, like the R&B and stuff. So I started gravitating towards Mariah Carey and, you know, Celine Dion, Boyz II Men, Brian McKnight. So these are names that I can come to quickly as far as inspiration. But, you know, as I'm coming into this new chapter of seeing and hearing all this familiar spirit, but just in new singers who've been around for a long time. I mean, these are these people have been doing what they've been doing for a long time, but I'm just new to the party. I love Donnie McClurkin, and it's such an obvious name to say. I mean, this man, uh, you know, if, for, if you've never heard of him before, he sang at Whitney Houston's funeral. You know what I mean? He's someone who is established and crosses barriers in the pop world as well as in the gospel world. He's a minister. He sings and, and speaks at the same time. Like he is an amazing personality and, and force to be reckoned with on the platform. And I love listening to him. And I remember when I was at the Holy Land Experience and we were having a, a praise and worship taping, um, he and Michael W. Smith sang one of Michael M- Michael's songs. And I was just like, I was just crying. So I can tell you that even even apart, <laughs> those two those two men are, are quite different from each other, but also very inspiring. But I just loved hearing them sing together. So Donnie McClurkin, one of my favorites. I had the pleasure of seeing Mandisa sing some of her songs um, just the other night in a concert. And I love her energy so, so much. I would love to write for her. <laughs> I would like to be her friend. So, and basically, I'm at this point where I start to hear songs that I love. Like, there's one that might be called Oh the Blood. I have no idea who sings it, but I think it's called Oh the Blood. <laughs> and uh, basically, I'm just coming into knowing knowing these songs and the people who, who sing them. I know uh, Nicole C. Mullen. I have sung My Redeemer Lives, and I love that song. And, you know, my friend kind of knows these people like I grew up loving Rachel Lampa she was someone who she was basically like my my gateway singer into uh, the Christian music world when pop R&B was starting to kind of put its foot down in the Christian industry and I was probably I was probably in high school or maybe early college when Rachel Lampa came out and she was younger than me but had this huge voice she was like Christina Aguilera her her inspirations were kind of the same as mine and uh, I really loved her album so I actually pulled about three songs from that album 
to sing in church because a lot of it was upbeat and I needed songs who were like, like more power ballad, like more like Celine Dion, let's say. And, um, she had some great songs on that album. The first one, um, that I listened to and, uh, you know, you heard me sing blessed on TBN. That's where I got it from was just hearing somehow I heard that album. Someone might've recommended it to me, but she really started it for me. And I'm just really excited that in the world that I'm living in now, I'm again in a position of I don't know a lot about it, but I feel it and I can do it and I just want to learn more and challenge myself. So I'm in the process of learning who are these people who sing these songs? What is their message? Who are they as people? You know, and I have the ability living where I live now and knowing who I know to get to know some of these artists better on a personal level and to listen to their ministry more. And, and I'm excited to learn more about the world of gospel because I've loved the music of it for so long. But now I want to get to the heart of it, you know, and find my place in it. So I'm still in the middle of finding out all the favorites and what I gravitate to and who I love the most. But I do love Donnie McClurkin. let's go back to disney for just a minute and then we'll go kind of broad for a last few questions you did quite a bit with the walt disney company all in the performance entertainment uh you know parts of it but some was on uh, tv some was in concerts some was in the parks if you could have any job working for the walt disney company doing anything what would it be and why? Well, these days, what I would probably most love to do is be a staff member or the co-host of a new version of the Mickey Mouse Club, uh, taped on Disney property, of course. And now it wouldn't be taped. It would They'd call it something else like recorded or digitally something, you know. Um, but I have this dream of bringing all of my experience and, you know, my love for my personal childhood history that was given to me by Disney, um, bringing that to the next generation of cast members because the cast members are going to bring it to the audience, you know, but I would really love to see myself as, you know, the musical director, possibly, you know, the, the vocal coach or advisor, you know, an executive producer, not that I really know what that is, but I would try it if they let me, you know, um, just something where I could have input and, um, you know, creative uh, contributions to the next generation of Mouseketeers. Um, that would really complete a, a beautiful circle for my creative career. That would be wonderful. And otherwise, I just love live performance. So if there was, you know, a show similar to American Vibe or, you know, or the Voices of Liberty, you know, somewhere where I was a part of a special group of people, Tarzan Rocks as well, just any, and they still have so many options like that in the parks, you know, great live shows and great cast members, very talented people everywhere. Um, It would be cool to do that again, but I think really where I am now, it would almost be, I mean, the best thing ever would be that Disney asks me to come be a part of special events because it's me versus, you know, maybe have a, have a a nine to five type job back in the company because I've, I've done that, you know, I've lived that and I really, really have great memories from that. I'd want to come back as something more this next time, you know? So I would love for Disney to say, Hey, Mouseketeer, Jennifer, come sing for us with this person and that person and let's go do a show and let's go celebrate an anniversary or let's go put together a reunion or let's go do the next version of the Mickey Mouse Club. Like that's what I think would make me the most happy these days is that they ask Jennifer McGill back in the capacity of Jennifer McGill. You can show it with a smile Do something special The light of love in the hand they go find us It takes one star One heart to light a spark The flames are fast
Have you ever wanted to share something with someone just because? Well, we do a lot. So we started a podcast about, well, whatever we want. My name is Joyce. And I'm her lovely husband, Al. Uh, well, you know what I mean. And we're the hosts of the Disneyland podcast, Tales from the Mouse House. And the Amazing Race podcast, Fast Forward. And I'm one of the co-hosts of the MASH 4077th podcast. And you'd think with all of these podcasts, we'd run out of things to share. But then you'd be wrong. In our new show, Just Because, we're going to share all the things that, well, just don't fit into any of our other podcasts. Yep, like videos of our puppy Kate as she plays with the water bottle. Mm -hmm. Maybe some episodes chatting about one of our favorite TV shows. Like Lost? Uh Uh-huh. Or maybe an audio play Al has written. And we'll even have episodes contributed by others who have something to share but just don't want to start their own podcast. You never know what you'll find on this show. Why? Just because. Visit us at justbecausepodcast.com and in iTunes. That brings us to the end of this week's show. A very special thank you to Jennifer McGill for being my guest and to you for listening. If you've worked for the Walt Disney Company in any capacity and would like to share a positive story, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY anytime, 24 hours a day. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show, let me know and we'll talk. If you're a Disney guest of any Disney experience or had an encounter or an interaction with a cast member that made some extra Disney magic or had any special Disney experience you want to share, theme park, movie, maybe you loved the Mickey Mouse Club or the new Mickey Mouse Club and you want to share a memory from that, I would love to hear from you too. Email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call the listener feedback line at 734-23-STORY and tell me about your experience. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes, on the website, or you can hear Stories of the Magic while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio. If you like the show, please rate and review Stories of the Magic in iTunes or on Stitcher. Those ratings help make the podcast more visible there so it's easier for people to find. Leaving a rating and a review will only take a couple of minutes, and I'd be very grateful to you. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, check out the show notes for useful links from each episode, too. Please like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash storiesofthemagic. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash storiesofmagic and tweet out that you're listening. Pin it on Pinterest, plus one on Google+. Tell your friends about the show. Keep letting others know that you're listening so they can join in the magic. Finally, this episode has been brought to you by Leaving Conformity Coaching. If you feel like you're just going through the motions, living in a fog with no clear idea of why you're here and what you're supposed to do, maybe even wasting your life, then it's time to take steps to change your life and be transformed. Live your life with purpose, clarity, direction, and meaning. To find out more about Leaving Conformity Coaching and how I can help you, access some free resources and read my blog, visit leavingconformitycoaching.com stories. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories, and this tale continues next time. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line, 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website, storiesofthemagic.com for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.